You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, June 8th, 2023. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Brooklyn Lambright reports on a rise in anti-LGBTQ legislation in Indiana. More in the bottom half of our program. Also coming up in the next half hour, the Bloomington Board of Public Works approved a lease agreement with Summit Hill Community Development Corporation. More in your daily headlines. During the June 6th meeting of the Bloomington Board of Public Works, City Attorney Chris Wheeler discussed a lease agreement with Summit Hill Community Development Corporation. Uh, Summit Hill was created or formed by the Bloomington Housing Authority uh, a few years back to uh, house City of Bloomington Land Trust and other extended programming of the BHA, and this is one of those extended programs. Uh, The property in question is located at 1050 North Summit. I think yesterday at the work session I referenced 1007 North Summit, but that's actually the uh, headquarters for BHA and Summit. Uh, So it's basically right across the street from what we're talking about, which is 1050. Uh, This uh, property used to be uh, the home of a water tower that utilities owned. They decommissioned that water tower and in the process of decommissioning also had to do some soil remediation, which they completed successfully under a voluntary uh, remediation project with IDEM. And uh, at this point in time, the property has no use restrictions on it from an environmental standpoint and is a suitable place for Summit to uh, construct a mixed use property a mixed-use structure that would include a, um, a, a uh, licensed daycare and several affordable housing units for rent. Uh, the city believes this would be a good project and wishes to engage in a lease agreement for 99 years. Uh, part, uh, some of the high points of this lease agreement would be uh, that there will be mutual hold harmless agreements between the two parties. There would be no subletting of any of the property without approval by the City of Bloomington. Uh, The tenant would be solely responsible for any repairs and maintenance on the property, including any structures that the tenant might place there. Uh, Tenant will also be required to maintain insurance and show proof of insurance annually on the structures located on the property. Board members asked Wheeler about which daycare would operate from the location and what the construction timeline would be. Wheeler said he did not know. He noted that Director of Real Estate Development for Summit Hill, Nate Ferreria, could not attend the meeting due to a prior obligation. During public comment, local journalist Dave Askins of the B-Square Bulletin asked about the zoning designation for the location. So, first of all, I think we made some progress in dialing in the exact location, um, but we're not quite there. I think the, the exact address of this property is 1020 
North Monroe Street. Um, it is right in the vicinity of 1007 North Summit, but uh, the subject property, I believe, is 1020 North Monroe Street. And if you look up the zoning for that, it's R3, which is residential small lot. So I guess my question is, is the planned use uh, under the terms of this lease consistent with that zoning designation? Um, or is the plan to ask for a variance or a rezoning or whatever needs to be done? Or is it one of those cases where because it's government and not quasi-government, the government is not subject to the, to the zoning restrictions? I don't know. So that's my question. I know that BHA was securing a variance for the property. I think they did secure one and they renewed it recently. I have um, not paid much attention to exactly what the variance says for the use because it really wasn't something that I was overly concerned with. That was more on BHA's side to make sure that they have the right to do the things that they're going to do on the property. He explained that Summit Hill received a multi-use zoning variance for the property several years ago. Board President Kyla Cox Deckard asked if Summit Hill were not able to develop the property, what would happen to the lease? Wheeler explained how that would play out. If something happens and um, the uh, Summit Hill Community Development Corporation can't develop uh, what is being proposed, um, then what happens to the lease that is agreed upon in this meeting? The, the uses that have been stated, which are the, the multi-use conditions, which would be the um, the daycare facility and the uh, affordable housing units, if those cannot be accomplished, those are the only things they're allowed to do on that property. And the two parties are able to terminate the lease whenever they want to by agreement. Uh, and so uh, we would be able to terminate the lease at that time if they weren't going to be able to use it for those limited purposes. The board approved the lease with Summit Hill unanimously. The Bloomington Board of Public Works will meet again for its regular meeting on June 20th. The Monroe County Election Board met on June 1st. Chief Deputy Clerk Tricia Martin shared that two candidates submitted late filing forms and asked the board to decide what should be done. You have two late filings and they've both been cured. Uh, one of them was due on 417 and they brought, excuse me, it was due on 414 and they brought in 417. This is a first-time offense. The second one is a political party. It was due on January the 18th, and they returned it on April 3rd. Again, this is a first-time offense. So we need to decide on what do you want to do with both of these. President of the board, Donovan Garlitz, suggested that both late filings be forgiven and both candidates given a warning in line with the new procedure regarding first offenses. According to our previously voted on procedures, I believe this is a warning for both. The board unanimously voted to approve the warning for the two late CFA-4 filings. Next, board member David Henry asked for clarification on the Steinsville and Ellettsville polling locations. So it, looking ahead to the calendar uh, for um, polling locations for Steinsville and Ellettsville, mm -hmm. Uh, we're just waiting on whether or not parties conduct ballot vacancy caucus if they're, those are then being contested, right? 
Martin responded. Well, back before the primary, we talked about this. So I did bring this and it says, a resolution is not needed, but the board must consider this topic. State law says that the uncontested races do not to need to be on the ballot. However, party chairs have requested that uncontested races be placed on the ballots in both the city of Bloomington and the town of Ellisville. So I'm assuming we're going to stay with that? Yeah, that, that's fair. And so Steinsville, though... Uh, Steinsville doesn't have an election. Correct. Um, correct. Okay, that's what I was checking out, mostly. Steinsville. All right. Mm -hmm. Thanks for answering my question. You're welcome. The next Monroe County Election Board meeting will be held on July 6th. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Brooklyn Lambright reports on a rise in anti-LGBTQ legislation in Indiana. We turn to Lambright for more. The 1st of June officially kicked off Pride Month. Across the state, LGBTQ plus Hoosiers are celebrating their right to same-sex marriage, gender-affirming care, and the opportunity to live authentically. However, this year has also welcomed a growing number of anti-LGBTQ plus bills by Indiana legislation, and some Hoosiers are finding it difficult to celebrate Pride Month in light of recent bills. As more anti-LGBTQ plus legislation passes the State House, more LGBTQ plus Hoosiers are growing concerned and questioning their safety within the state. Most recently, Senate Bill 480 was signed into law by Governor Eric Holcomb. The bill restricts the right to gender-affirming care for trans children. Shelley Snyder, the executive director of Indie Pride, says the amount of anti-LGBTQ plus legislation in 2023 is concerning. And we found out in January that there were going to be, um, I think that they said there was going to be more than 20 anti-LGBTQ plus bills proposed in the 2023 legislative session. Uh, we were alarmed because the most we have ever seen come down is seven. So. We know that this year there were triple the amount of anti-LGBTQ plus bills that came out of the state house. And it has really had a negative effect on the you know, emotional state of our community members. The Trevor Project reports that nearly 59% of transgender boys slash men and 48% of transgender girls slash women considered suicide in the past year. They also found that for transgender children living in a community not supportive of their identity, suicide rates were significantly higher. Anti-LGBTQ plus bills are hurting the state's economy as well. LGBTQ plus people are leaving Indiana because of safety fears and a restricted access to health care. G. David Cottle, the founder and operations director of Equality Indiana, says it's disappointing to see big businesses in Indiana stay quiet on the issue of anti-LGBTQ plus legislation. The disappointing part about these anti-LGBTQ bills that will become law is the business community did not speak up forcefully enough, especially the larger businesses, that how passing these bills could impact their businesses because their employees won't feel safe, whether their children won't or whether even LGBTQ adults will suddenly not feel safe being in this state and want to relocate 
which means these companies may take away from the economic engine of Indiana if they say they don't want to be in the state any longer. And I think that part of the conversation was not discussed enough. And we hope to bring that part of that messaging in the next election that having Indiana as an unwelcoming state to everyone could lead to businesses and small businesses up to large businesses deciding not to call Indiana home anymore, which would then take, um, you know, workers out of our state, take businesses out of our state, which then takes tax dollars out of our state, which then could do real economic damage to the state's economy. So that message was not discussed enough. LGBTQ plus people are leaving Indiana for more progressive states that still have access to gender affirming care and are overall less discriminatory. Trans children no longer have access to gender affirming care in Indiana, meaning they must travel to a nearby state to receive care. Parents in support of their trans children are deciding to uproot and leave the state. It's very concerning to see these anti-LGBTQ plus bills come out of the state house. It has an effect on the economy. It makes people not want to work in the state of Indiana. It has an effect on our families. It makes people not want to live in the state of Indiana. Katie Blair, the director of advocacy and public policy for ACLU Indiana, says a small but radical group of legislators are controlling the state house. This year, they have chosen to draft legislation affecting one of Indiana's minority groups, trans people. It's really devastating to see the amount of bills that have been um, pushed forward both here in Indiana and across the country. Um, we're seeing an onslaught of anti-LGBTQ bills bigger than ever before, and, and particularly in the state. I think that there is a small but vocal, radically conservative part of our legislature that is pushing forward these bills. They're working with national um, anti-LGBTQ hate groups to draft um, these bills and push them forward. The Alliance Defending Freedom, or ADF, is one of the national anti-LGBTQ hate groups, pushing legislators to pass more extreme bills against the LGBTQ plus community. ADF was first classified as a hate group in 2016 by the Southern Poverty Law Center. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, ADF has spread lies about LGBTQ plus people being linked to pedophilia and, more recently, misinformation about gender-affirming care. ADF also believes homosexuality should be a crime and in the past has supported laws forcing sterilization for transgender people. Cottle says limiting health care for trans people, as Senate Bill 480 does, is concerning for not only LGBTQ plus people, but also for any Hoosier in the state. Allies would see that as well, as if laws are being passed to attack someone they know, love, and affirm, it does create that question. Well, what are they going to, you know, if they're going to stop allowing for medical care or uh, uh, gender affirming care, are they going to uh, pass a law that says, you know, for medical care for people with diabetes or people with, you know, hair loss or people with certain, I mean, where does it end? And yes, that's a slippery slope discussion, but if the other side can do it for, for certain, you know, laws, we can do that as well. And it's true. They, you know, they're already banning medical care for women who get pregnant. Now they're banning care for individuals who need gender affirming care to treat their medical condition. Uh, what's the next ban going to be for? ACLU Indiana is keeping a close eye on legislators and is suing the state over any bills they find to be unconstitutional. 
However, they do encourage people to make their voices heard by emailing representatives or attending protests at the State House. Indie Pride is also encouraging Hoosiers to attend Pride events. I encourage people to think about, you know, the bills that are coming out have been uh, sort of identified as a slate of hate. And when you think about that 14-year-old queer kid in Southern Indiana who doesn't have any positive LGBTQ plus role models, consider making yourself known to those people and come out to our events to celebrate and show the state of Indiana that we exist, we're here, and we're proud of who we are. Organizations such as ACLU Indiana, Equality Indiana, and Indy Pride are all advocating for a change within Indiana's legislature. They encourage Hoosiers to attend protests, keep informed on anti-LGBTQ plus bills, and to vote in upcoming elections. For more information on Indiana legislature and local legislators, visit either aclu-in.org or equalityindiana.org. To learn more about Pride Month, visit indypride.org. For WFHB, I'm Brooklyn Lambright. Up next, we have Prescription for Healthcare, a podcast collaboration between WFHB and Medicare for All Indiana. This month, we have part two of our interview with Richard Master, prominent businessman and producer of the new movie, American Hospitals, Healing a Broken System. We turn to hosts Dr. Rob Stone and Karen Greenstone for more. From Bloomington, Indiana, welcome to Prescription for Healthcare on WFHB Community Radio, sponsored by Medicare for All Indiana. I'm Karen Greenstone, along with Dr. Rob Stone. Today, we continue our conversation from the May Prescription for Healthcare segment on WFHB with Richard Master, the founder and CEO of MCS Industries, North America's leading supplier of picture frames, decorative mirrors, and home decor. Richard formed the Unfinished Business Foundation that has produced the documentaries Fix It, Healthcare at the Tipping Point, Big Pharma Market Failure, Big Money Agenda, Democracy on the Brink. Medicare for All Indiana Bloomington recently screened the newly released documentary American Hospitals Healing a Broken System. Richard, in 2019, you formed Business Leaders for Healthcare Transformation, that is a coalition of business leaders. CEOs, entrepreneurs, sole proprietors, and concerned citizens who believe that the employer-based health insurance system is fundamentally broken and hinders American competitiveness. Will you please comment on this? We're now communicating with 2,500 folks across the country on a regular basis. Interestingly enough, I had a discussion today with our health insurance broker, and I've been involved in healthcare analysis, and I have an economics degree for the last 10 years. And frankly, I didn't understand half of the things that the broker was trying to explain to me. The number of consultants and the complications, and we have a third-party administrator, we have a stop-loss carrier, we have a pharmacy benefit manager, we have all these aspects of 
healthcare that each one has rebates and commissions and who gets what and how, and it's just a mess. And it's from this arcane employer-based healthcare system that we've developed over the years. It's something that really started in World War II when employers were looking for employees to help in our war effort and insurance became the benefit that drew more people into the workforce. And we continued to do this over the years and really did not properly regulate employer-based healthcare. And the other part of that World War II was that there were wage and price controls in effect. So insurance became a way to try to attract people since you couldn't offer higher wages. That's right. The regulation is something that we need really pretty much throughout the system. We do need to regulate in one form or another prices. Medicare does it and does it effectively. Medicare prices go up maybe one and a half percent, 1.7 percent a year. Commercially insured prices go up over three and a half to four percent a year. It's really the employers that are subsidizing the healthcare system in the country. Richard, I've always thought that the business community, which naturally is a group of relatively conservative people in at least some ways, but that they are, in terms of our attempts to figure out how to build this movement to get everybody in the country taken care of, that the business community is like this sleeping giant because of just the things you were just saying about this is a nightmare for business leaders. The healthcare stuff, just you need one consultant after another. The costs go up and the costs are really hard to predict. And how can you budget? So that idea that there is a very rich potential for growing support for what we want to do in the business community. Tell us more about your thoughts about that and how you're working with the organizations you're part of. Rob, you're right. The business community has had its head in the sand for years and years. The system is not comprehensible to business people. We're preoccupied with our own markets and our own products. And to have this complication in front of us is something that for many business people, they just, you know, bear it um, and try to make the best of it and sort of let the HR professional who's not, in many cases, enough informed to handle it. And as a result, we're here. We're where we are. We're dealing with, in many cases, hospital systems that are virtual monopolies. In 90% of the population centers and across the country, two or one or three hospital systems that dominate the market. And they compete. Each one may have a market-dominant strategy, but they don't compete on price. Richard, will you please tell our listeners, what is your prescription for healthcare? It's interesting that in the process of making American hospitals, we always look for solutions. And we did find something that we think deserves national attention, and that is what's going on in the state of Maryland. Maryland was one of the only states that retained the regulation of prices, and they have what is called an all-payer system, where all the providers and the insurers 
and consumer groups and the state get together and negotiate prices that are being charged by each hospital. So that an appendectomy that costs $10,000 in one hospital in Maryland will cost approximately $10,000 in another hospital. And that price is paid regardless of who's paying the bill. A Medicaid or Medicare patient or a commercially insured patient would pay that same amount. In most other states, a commercially insured patient would pay two and a half to three times, and they might pay $30,000 for that $10,000 appendectomy. That's the one thing that happened in Maryland. The second thing is that they began to globally budget hospitals. And that means that the state would sit down with the hospital and they would establish a budget annually that would be sufficient for that hospital to take care of its population. That changed the incentives in Maryland from doing as many procedures as they can in the hospital to really keeping folks out of the hospital and that expensive care environment as best they could. So they dealt with chronic diseases in the community. They did it right the first time. They had less readmissions into the hospital. They cut infectious diseases in the hospital. They made sure that when people were released from the hospital, that the aftercare was more disciplined and that folks would take their medications and that they would have periodic appointments with doctors in the community. That started the process of reducing hospital expense throughout the state. It is an advance that we think should be replicated throughout the country. Just recently, we talked with Representative Matt Pierce of Indiana, our local representative, and he has introduced the idea of a Maryland-type system for Indiana and he actually, when we screened the movie, he came down from a long day at the state house and talked about the progress that he's made to set up a study commission to look at the Maryland system. That's wonderful. I think that should be done throughout the country. And congratulations to you folks in Indiana for taking that step. Yes. And it's a result of him seeing the rough cut of your movie. <laughs> wow. Yes. <laughs> We're honored. Thank yeah, we you. shared him a cut of it back around Thanksgiving when we had an early cut. And because he needed some time to look at this in order to be ready for when the legislation session started January 3rd. And we actually were able to connect him with Josh Sherstein in Maryland, who's in the movie several times. Yes, he's the former Secretary of Health and mm -hmm. one of the architects of the Maryland system. He's now at Johns Hopkins University in their School of Public Health. Great well, stuff. Richard Master, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. I know that you're really busy and just deep gratitude and appreciation for taking time today. Thank you. Thank you for hosting this and hearing my random thoughts. <laughs> for more information on the documentaries we mentioned, please go to fixithealthcare.com, F-I-X-I-T-H-E-A-L-T-H-C-A-R-E.com. This is Karen Greenstone and Dr. Rob Stone for Prescription for Healthcare, sponsored by Medicare for All Indiana on WFHB Community Radio. To your good health, everyone. Stay safe and thank you for listening. We may never see this moment, a place.
Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Brooklyn Lambright. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. For WFHB, this is your engineer and executive producer, Cade Young. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Big Talk, a one-on-one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people. Coming up next on WFHB.